Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I'm concluding my series today from the book of Ruth. This last part will include two chapters because the two chapters span a contiguous story. The title of my sermon today is, How Do You Fit Into God's Master Plan? I have two simple points that will outline this, and if you care to write those down and just jot your own notes, you're welcome to do that. But the first thing that I will bring out in this narrative today is that God works through circumstances and people. We'll wait till we get down to that before I enlarge on it. And the second simple point is that God is working something bigger. So let me get started on this narrative today to tell this story, to, to put it together in a way that, that maybe just uh, gives us a snapshot of what's going on in these chapters. We learned from the previous two Sundays that Ruth is a Moabite. If you were here, that, that makes sense to you. If you were not, uh, then maybe just to catch you up, that was from a land of heathens. Raised by idolaters. Raised in a religion that performed as, as a part of their sacred rites. All kinds of sexual perversions in their religious uh, activities. She was raised in that kind of a, uh, an atmosphere and a culture. But Ruth married Naomi's son, one of, one of her sons. And the son dies and Naomi's husband die and... And the the women are left widowed in the land of Moab. Naomi chooses to move back home. Ruth chooses to go with her. Orpah doesn't go. She stays in Moab. She has no interest in going. But Ruth clings to Naomi and devotes herself to Naomi's people and Naomi's culture and Naomi's God. When they come back, these two women don't have many resources. And Naomi sends Ruth out to the field of Boaz and said, go out and just glean the fields. Now, I am keenly aware of what gleaning the fields mean because I have done that personally. See, we also raise a lot of corn in Missouri where I grew up, like you do here in Iowa. And when we were establishing our little church, Many years ago, and I was just a child, we were scraping for every dollar we could get to finance the growth and the building of that little church. So we got to glean cornfields after the machinery had gone through and a certain amount of the corners were not cleaned up well and the machine didn't get everything as some things were run down by the tires. There, was, there were ears of corn left in the field, that it wasn't worth the time and the effort for the uh, harvesters to get it that clean. So 
we went in and borrowed a pickup truck because nobody in our church had a pickup truck, so we borrowed one. And we went out and ran the pickup truck up and down the fields and found ears of corn and threw them in the back of the pickup truck, then went down to the elevator and cashed the corn in. Sometimes we'd get uh, $17 for a day's work, $25. And we did this on several weekends, gleaning. So I know what gleaning is. There's not a whole lot left over. Naomi tells Ruth, go out and glean the fields. Boaz has mercy and compassion on her and, as we mentioned last week, leaves handfuls of grain on purpose so she can find it and increase her take. It's a beautiful story. Now Naomi decides that if they're going to survive, these two women, there's going to have to be a man in their life. And she sets about to be matchmaker for Ruth and Boaz. You see, matchmaking goes back centuries where women butt into somebody else's life and decide you and you would go good together. I'm going to make that happen. Now, Boaz is a cousin. Of course, he's not a cousin to Ruth, but just by marriage. And as a relative, he's also a kinsman redeemer. A guardian redeemer, it might be in your translation. Which just meant culturally that they had a responsibility to look out for uh, those in need in their family. And Naomi was driven to the point of, dis- of distress and despair and hardship where she was now seriously considering selling uh, pieces of the land that belonged to her, if not the entire land. And, of course, the land would be gone, except a kinsman redeemer, a relative, a guardian redeemer, could actually buy the land, and she could continue to have some profits from the land because it now belonged to the kinsman redeemer. It It was an act of compassion and kindness to family. And Naomi thinks that Ruth and Boaz would make a perfect couple. So she tells Ruth, take a bath, because they didn't didn't bathe that often in, in that culture in that day. Put on your best dress and throw on some of that smell goodie you've got. That really rich perfume. And, and go down there to where Boaz is tonight and, and wait patiently until after he has eaten and drank and he's happy. Because after a hard day's work, she wants him in a good mood. And then after he has had his meal and he's feeling good and he goes and, and goes to sleep, which he was going to camp out at the threshing floor to spare his grain from thieves. So he's got a little camp set out at the threshing floor. And Naomi says, then when he goes to sleep, his belly is full, he's happy, he's refreshed. You, in your fancy dress and your smelly perfume, sneak down to his camp and lay down by his feet. Now, 
uh, we're having a hard time culturally understanding exactly what she's doing here. So probably what she did was as he's laying in one direction, she's laying in a, in a cross direction like an upside down T. And she's laying at his feet. And then Naomi says, when you get settled in laying down at his feet, reach over there and uncover his feet. Now, you know why? Because his feet's going to get cold and he's going to wake up. That's exactly why. You, can you see the scheming, conniving mind? These women, they're good at that. Is that what you said? Yes, they are. She's got this planned to a T. Reach over there and uncover his feet because he'll get cold and wake up, and then there you'll be. Well, she does all of that. I'm a little bit amazed at the story that this man who is sleeping there to guard his grain from anybody sneaking in on his camp doesn't catch her sneaking in. She was a sneak of all sneaks. She was better than a thief. So Boaz, his tummy is full. He's tired from a hard day's work. He's made his bed in the threshing floor. He's fast asleep, so asleep he doesn't recognize this woman coming into his camp and laying there by his feet. But he wakes up and says, why are my feet cold? And when he wakes up, he notices somebody down there at his feet and says, who are you? And Ruth says... I am Ruth. Would you marry me? She gets right down to business. She says, will you cover me with the corner of your garment? See, that was culturally significant. We think that uncovering the feet was culturally significant. That was only practical in fulfilling her mission. But the fact that she says, would you cover me with your garment, that was highly symbolic in that culture of him offering himself to her as her guardian. I will take care of you. Boaz tries to shake the sleep from his mind and clear his, clear his mind and, and get his eyes wide awake and make sense of what is going on here. A woman sneaks in here, uncovers my feet, and proposes to me. And Boaz is older than Ruth. He is an eligible bachelor. He's well-to-do. He's got a nice agricultural business, money in the bank, but he's not married. And he's getting a little bit long in tooth. And he says to Ruth, and now this is how we know this. He says to Ruth, you know, you are a woman of great honor and virtue. You could have had any one of these young men. You had your pick and choice of anybody you want. Why you want an old geezer like me? So he confesses her honor. Her integrity. He's a man of integrity as well. And the condition is this. <clears throat> he says, I would be honored to have you as my wife. It must have seemed like quite a catch to Boaz. He was probably getting on with his life. 
and figuring that this this lovely young woman, striking young woman, would never give him a second look. I'm always thrilled, but he says there's there's one catch. He said there is another relative who is closer than I am. And he has to have first shot at you. So Boaz goes to town and hangs out at the gate. And this other man that is not given a name, which is really difficult to tell the story without a name. So he says to the other relative, would you sit down? We need to have a talk. And the other relative gives him the time, grants him the audience. And then Boaz rounds up ten other men real quickly from the town that's going to represent a council of wisdom. Trustworthy man. So he's got the unnamed relative, and he's got these ten other men, and he sits down and he tells them the story of Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi has her land for sale, and they're in desperate straits. They're just gleaning grain from the fields just to stay alive. And this unnamed relative is, has compassion on this, and Boaz says, you know, would you step up to the plate and do your duty as a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer? And the man said, well, sure. I'd be glad to do that for her. And Boaz says, there, there's one more thing. And that is, if you do this, she, she has this daughter-in-law, Naomi is a Moabite. You have to marry her. And... This man responds and says, then I cannot redeem it. It might endanger my estate. That's the fourth chapter, the sixth verse. I I can't do it. It might endanger my estate. Now let me translate that for you. My wife would kill me. She won't go for this at all. I can't do it. And Boaz, of course, now has the opportunity opened up. As I know his, his heart is racing. You know, I might lose Ruth to the closer relative. But how happy he has to be that it just didn't work out with this other guy. Yes. Boaz and Ruth get together. He becomes the kinsman redeemer. That's the story in a nutshell. I've not covered all the details, but I just kind of wanted to feed this out to you. And from this, I, I, I want to bring out this point, that you will see in this story and in other examples that will come to mind as we think about this, this fact, God works his will through circumstances and people. He works his will even through adverse circumstances and uncooperative people. God's will has never been stopped just because the circumstances turned sour. 
God's master plan has never been aborted just because somebody said no. He has a master plan. He works through willing people. He works through unwilling people. Or he works regardless of unwilling people. He just has this marvelous way of executing his plan no matter what comes in his way. So the anonymous near kinsman refuses to take responsibility as would be his duty. Closed doors and spoiled plans and uncooperative people and dashed hopes are the kind of things that often discourage us, but they don't stop the plan of God. Remember that. Because we get discouraged and we give up. And God says, I'm just getting started. He's always got a workaround. He's always got a work through. He's never stopped by any of these barriers or impediments. Proverbs 19.21. You might want to jot that down. That is a perfect passage of Scripture for this. It says, many are the plans in a person's heart. But it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. (laughs) He's going to have his will and his way done, no matter what people think. I've seen people fight against the plan and the will of God many times. They never win. They, They just don't learn. People don't learn from generation to generation. You can't fight against God. He will have his will done. We see this truth proven so many times throughout Scripture and in circumstances in our life. Sometimes it seems like we're traveling along just fine and suddenly there's this huge interruption to the flow of things. Suddenly there's a barrier where it's not going like I thought it was going to go. Sometimes it feels like it has brought your life to a grinding halt. Maybe it's little practical things like you were just ready to close on that new house you were going to buy and suddenly the whole thing just falls apart. Maybe you were getting ready to buy that car and at the last minute, the last moment, something just didn't work out and you were disappointed. Maybe it was something as small and practical as you were planning that big vacation. Reservations were made, tickets were purchased, and then something comes up and you can't go. Maybe it's something as serious as the wedding date was set. All the supplies were purchased and the arrangements were made and the fees and the down payments were made. And then at the last minute, the bride or the groom backs out. There is not going to be a wedding. A young lady said in my office many years ago, she was making plans to marry a total loser. This young man had no spiritual background, no spiritual bearings, no spiritual awareness about him. I'm just telling you, picture a loser. It's not that he couldn't be redeemed. It's just that in this situation, she was raised in a Christian home. She had a heart and a a passion for God. She wanted to serve him, but she wanted to marry this person. 
And I counseled with both of them. I knew where she was coming from. I counseled with him. I want you to tell me about your relationship with the Lord. He looked at me like I was talking Greek to him. He didn't understand what I was asking. Are you a Christian? He said, yes, I'm a Christian. Tell me how you became a Christian. He looked again at me like he did not understand what I was saying. What language are you talking? And I urged him and coaxed him and tried to get something out of him. And finally, he came out with this. He said, when I was a little boy, I went to church camp one time. That was it. That was his testimony. Therefore, he's a Christian. But he was wrapped up in drugs. He, he was a mess. He had no, no incentive in life. I dismissed him. I brought her in. I talked with her. And I said... You are a lovely young lady, and you have everything in life going for you. And young men will be lined up to have a God-fearing young lady like you. What is wrong with you? Why is it you want to settle for this when you've got so much going for you? She just kind of stared at me. Something must have sunk in because they called it off. And she went and married a young man that loves the Lord. And I've, I've connected with him on Facebook. I see him today. Beautiful family. Beautiful boys. Things are working in their life. But they were that close to something going wrong. But see, she's an example of somebody that could have said, well, all of my plans and all of my hopes and all of my dreams have now been dashed. What am I going to do now? But you know what? God has a plan. And you can't always look at those things that look like disappointments in your life and think that this is a defeat. That's not always a defeat. I had put a little blurb on my uh, Facebook leading up to this sermon. Close doors. Don't stop you. They redirect you. We think sometimes that's the end. No, it's just take another direction. God doesn't want you going this direction. We see this when we're trying to do God's work. It seems the enemy keeps throwing up barriers and roadblocks, making our path difficult, our work for the Lord impossible. People change their minds at the last minute and throw all our plans off. Circumstances change at the last minute and we have to cancel all of our plans. But God's plans are never canceled just because somebody encountered some unexpected difficulties. And the refusal of that near kinsman did not only not stop God's plan, but it actually helped fulfill God's plan and purpose. Closed doors just don't stop you. They just tell you, go another direction. The second thing is obedience and integrity are regarding God's will. This is a sub-point. This is not my second main point. Obedience and integrity are key in God's will but not as you think not because it takes your integrity and your obedience to fulfill God's will it takes your integrity and your obedience to reap the blessings that come from being a part of God's will that's where it matters to you because God's will is going to go on with or without you you can't stop it by by being stubborn or resisting 
you're just going to get left behind. So it's important to be have integrity, to have uh, to be obedient, to have honor, so you can be a partaker of the good things that God has for us. Integrity and obedience opens up the blessings of God in our life. Both Ruth and Boaz were people of honor and integrity. We're uh, we're happy, but we're not shocked that Boaz is a respectable man of honor. After all, he grew up in that culture understanding Jehovah God. It was expected of him to be a man of integrity, although not all men were in that Jewish culture. But it was expected of him, so we're not surprised. We're happy for him, but we're not surprised. But we are surprised at Ruth and where she came from. We're, we're just amazed at how well she's turning out. The transformation of this Moabite woman who came out of that land of Moab, surrounded by godlessness, wickedness, perversion, and to come out and be the woman of integrity and honor that she is stated to be. That is the miracle-working grace of God in the lives of people. If you want a comparison there, if you want an illustration, it doesn't matter where you come from because when God gets done reworking you, you become a person of integrity. No matter what you have done to destroy your, your reputation in the years past, God can restore and redeem you. And it's because Ruth and Boaz were people of honor and integrity that the blessings of God flowed in their lives, which leads me to this next major point. That is, God is working something bigger than what you realize 99% of the time. The individual decisions that were made by Ruth and Boaz were convenient for them. They were going to have immediate payoff. Ruth was going to have security. Boaz was going to get a lovely young wife. Everything was going to be wonderful in their life. But there was something bigger at work than either of them realized. And it is so in your life as well. You make decisions that may have a payoff for you in this life. It looks good to you. This is going to be a blessing. This is going to be exciting. This is going to be everything I ever wanted. But if God is working in your life, you don't know how the bigger plan is coming together just because of what you are doing if you remain honorable and obedient to the Lord. Now, I want you to consider this. None of these people could have possibly known this bigger impact of all their decisions. Certainly the unnamed relative couldn't have known. Boaz was happy, but he couldn't know the big things that were going on in the background. Ruth, coming out of the land of Moab and and adapting into this new culture and learning how to serve the God of the Israelites, she couldn't know how big this really was. But Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse grows up and has many sons, one of whom is David. And David became the king of Israel. Ruth, sneaking down and setting her sights on Boaz and snagging this man results in the most famous king of Israel, the young shepherd boy coming from that lineage who was described as having a, 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 he was a man after God's own heart. 
that sweet singer of Israel that gave us so many of the beautiful psalms that we read. It was a bigger plan at work. Ruth and Boaz didn't know that. David's great-grandmother, Ruth the Moabite. And the marvel of all of this is that even the wrong decisions that were made and the stubborn and foolish characters that followed along the way may have had short-term negative impact for some people, but in the long run, there was something bigger at work. We're disappointed in the decision of Abraham to leave the land of Canaan and go down to Egypt. We're disappointed in that. We're disappointed in him and Lot dividing up and Lot going one direction and Abraham the other. We're disappointed in Lot choosing Sodom and Gomorrah and living there. We're disappointed in him and his daughters escaping to the mountain and his daughters getting him drunk and sleeping with him and having children by him. We're disappointed in all this sick and sordid mess. But out of that comes Moab, and out of Moab comes Ruth, and, and from Ruth with Boaz comes Obed, and out of Obed comes Jesse, and out of Jesse comes David, and I'm telling you, God works through circumstances and people. We're disappointed in Elimelech, panicking there in the land of Israel and thinking, I don't know if my family can survive here. Moving his family to the land of Moab, Elimelech, what are you thinking? And it wasn't God's plan for him to do that. But Elimelech dies, and the boys die, and Ruth comes back and marries Boaz, and there's the chain again. Because nothing stops the plan of God. Even when people make wrong decisions, God still executes his plan. And not only... Does David know in his lineage, looking back, to great-grandmother Ruth, the vile culture she was raised in? Not only does he know that, in the family tree there's some skeletons. But then David tells his children... Oh, that's, that's not all of the family tree. Let's jump over to the other side. You see, on the other side, on Boaz's side, Boaz had a father. His name was Salmon. Salmon had a wife who was Rahab. David tells about great-great-grandmother Rahab. She was a prostitute in Jericho. So he's got a he's got a great grandmother that came out of the land of idols. He's got a great great grandmother who serviced all the men in Jericho for money. And out of all of this, you would think the lineage of Jesus Christ would be untainted by humanity, but it's full of the failures of humanity. Just to prove one thing that God's plan will prevail. It's not stopped by the sinfulness of man, the failure of men, the failure of women. It's not stopped by anything. God will have a Messiah. It will come through no matter what gets in the way. His plan is bigger than all the failures of mankind. And to further appreciate the big picture... David was the second king of Israel. See, the first choice didn't work out. Israel panicked said, we need a king. Everybody around us has a king. We want to be like everybody else. Get us a king. 
So they got King Saul. He ended up being defective. He was crazy. He went mad. But then, when the original plan didn't work, then came the selection of David, the shepherd boy. And David became the king that is mentioned as David's throne, Jesus Christ sitting on David's throne. I didn't want to sit on Saul's throne. I'm going to sit on David's throne. Because once again, no matter how off course sometimes we get with our own plans, and like Israel, we get ahead of God. Give us a king. We don't care who it is. Just give us anybody. Pick the tall man over there. He looks good. Give us anybody. That's not where God wants us to go. That's not his plan. But God has a way of straightening it out. He has a way of bringing you home. He has a way of getting you back on course. He has a way of getting you just a little rain sometimes. So when you get out of line, he'll bring you back in. He'll get you back over here. He'll get you going in the right direction. God's plan is going to happen with or without you. But you better hope you're in his plan. And in your life, you know how these little things that you have to deal with every day you think they're just daily frustrations. And you don't know but what those things aren't just guiding you back to where you ought to be so that you become a part of the bigger plan God has for your life. I know many of you here today, you may be sitting here licking your wounds from the disappointments of your life, thinking it just didn't work out. Why didn't it work out? Why is it my marriage is broken? Why is it that things have fallen apart for me? Why is it the doors shut for me? Why is it every time I try to do something right, nothing good comes of it? Why is it that everything seems to be against me? Why is it all my plans fail? I want to tell you something that sometimes God just nudging you in another direction. He's not saying you're a failure. All you have do is just learn to be sensitive and say God another closed door now where do you want me to go because he wants to get you on track with him that's all it is he wants to work his will with you your struggles you endure might be working something far greater in you than you realize you're being prepared and shaped for something bigger than you understand. And it's not just about these daily trials you're going through. It's about the big picture. It's about God moving his master plan along. And you're a part of that happening. The people who built this church years ago planted this church that we call Westside. Those who founded this church, those who gathered in that very first meeting with a handful of people and had a vision to plant a church in Davenport, those who gathered there and met in humble uh, uh, places and, and, and the first little church that they had, and, and, and uh, it was not a fancy church like this. They just what they could afford, what they could do. It was a little thing. They were just doing little things. They had their struggles. They had their trials. They struggled with finances. They struggled to make things happen. And all of these trials are thinking, is it worth it? But they didn't know that what they were doing is part of a bigger plan. It was part of something that was going to happen someday. That literally, what has come out of this church has touched people around the world. And the people that have come out of here and the ministries that they have from coast to coast and around the world, they didn't know in that letter prayer meeting when they said, let's start a church, what was going to happen with God's master plan? You just don't know. Likewise, you're navigating your way through life. Your decisions have a tremendous impact 
in ways you do not yet imagine or understand and in people you do not yet know. That child Sunday school teacher that you are teaching in Sunday school class, you don't know but what they may grow up to be a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist who reaches thousands of people. Those kids you're hauling to church that's tearing your car up, you don't realize how the Holy Spirit's going to get a hold of one of those one of these days and call them to the mission field. And people are going to be saved who are going to go on to and save others who are going to have families who will be saved who will impact this world for Jesus Christ because you gave yourself faithfully. Just do your little part. You don't realize how big the plan is. You don't know how God may choose to use those that you are trying to bring into the kingdom. God's plan is so much bigger than you can imagine. So how do I fit into God's master plan? Well, God's going to do His will with or without me. I understand that. But if I'm faithful... I know that I can reap the blessings of being there in God's will. If I can be faithful, if I can be obedient, if I fail God, it's not going to stop His plan. It's just going to stop me. I just cheat myself. The second thing I want to wrap up with is don't despair because things are getting tough. Don't fret just because it gets hard going for you and you think that everything is against you. Nothing stops God's plan. And when we pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, we're not blazing a path for God to do his will. We are bringing ourselves into agreement with his will. Nevertheless, not my will, thine be done. In other words, God, help me to find what that is and help me to come in agreement with it. God's an unfailing God. He's never lost. He's never failed. He's never retreated. Lord. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Now years ago, C.M. Ward had preached on this passage, the Lord's Prayer. And I know theologically and semantically this is not exactly the way it is, but at the time it was appropriate. He had preached, the Bible says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now the King James Version does not say on earth. It says, in earth. That's not anything that we're going to make a big theological thing out of. But at this point, there was a a very simple-minded young man that came up to Dr. C.M. Ward after he had preached, and he said, Brother Ward, you are wrong. And he looked at this simple-minded young man and said, What do you mean? He said, The Bible doesn't say, Thy will be done on earth. It says, thy will be done in earth, where the earth. To have the concept that, God, it's not about your word and will being done here around me. It's about your will being done in me. Lord, thy will be done in this earthen vessel. Bow your heads.